the enemy next door. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Soren Kierkegaard A student of religion came up to Jesus with a trick question. Teacher, what do I need to do to earn eternal life? Jesus answered, you're the scholar. What does the law say? The scholar replied, love the Lord your God with everything you have, your emotions, your religious passion, your physical energy, and your intellect. You also have to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So, you already know, Jesus answered. Do all that and you'll live forever. Okay, the man said, looking for a loophole. But what's your definition of the word neighbor? As he did so often, Jesus told a story to answer the question. From Luke 10, 25-30. Having a bad neighbor can be terrible. I've had some less than awesome neighbors myself. I once shared a wall in a duplex with a guy who dealt drugs out of our adjoining garages. He also was a Raiders fan. I'm sorry if you're a Raiders fan, not for my joke about Raiders fans, but for the fact that you're a Raiders fan. Must be tough. I also had neighbors who probably believed that I enjoyed the mariachi music they constantly played loud enough for the entire neighborhood to hear. As skilled as those tuba and accordion players can be, I did, in fact, not enjoy it. I have had neighbors who had a lawyer send me a $10,000 demand letter for, wait for it, Dirt, they said I stole. Needless to say, as much as I love dirt, I did not pilfer any soil from them. To this day, I'm not totally sure why they thought I wanted to loot their loam. Perhaps they suspected I was trying to thieve their land a few cubic yards at a time. I'm also not sure I've always been the best neighbor. Between the extensive remodeling, extra cars from people we've taken in over the years, and having way too many friends, I would guess that our neighbors have usually found the area a bit quieter after we've vacated the community. Being a neighbor can be tough because you don't usually pick your neighbors. You usually pick the place you live based on low crime, low cost, or maybe just because you fall in love with the pink kitchen countertop tile that no one ever updated, and that now has come back into style with a certain in-the-know set of people. It's only after you move in that you find out if the kids of the people who live next door to you are like Beaver and Wally Cleaver or like Sid from Toy Story. That's why when Jesus was confronted with the issue of who the Bible commands you to love, it's a thorny issue. Before he was ever even asked, he addressed the subject in his most famous talk, the Sermon on the Mount. You do have enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 and 44, Jesus says, You've heard people say, Love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for anyone who mistreats you. Jesus frequently took on the accepted wisdom of the day. It's one of his favorite things to do, and he does it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But this particular advice was potentially deadly. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18, sort of. As brutal as the Torah could be in its punishment for seemingly small crimes at times, the laws the Jews were given by God were filled with compassion, too. This is one of those many places. Love your neighbor as yourself barely seems to fit in with the execution sentences handed down for idolatry, taking the Lord's name in vain, violation of the Sabbath, and rebelling against parents. It was pretty tough being a moody teenager in those days. But as strict as laws were for how people were to behave to live as part of a community, the same seriousness was applied to helping those people around you. Love your neighbor is one of those phrases we almost skip over because it seems so trite and lofty. 
It's like we simultaneously count love your neighbor as aspirational and unattainable. It's a wonderful idea we should really think about. Maybe later. Where does the hate your enemies part come from? It's not in the Mosaic Law to hate your enemies. It's more of a commentary on the first part to make it more doable. The Israelites were commanded to love their neighbors, but they were also instructed to kill every man, woman, and child in some battles while they were taking the land that had been promised to them. Clearly, God had forgotten to explain himself fully in Leviticus 18.19. Enter the commentators. In a law-driven society, things had to be explained better. And Jesus lived in a time when Israel was surrounded by enemies from within and from without. The Roman occupiers would crucify anyone who preached Jewish independence. The Jewish puppet kings who did the empire's bidding had spies everywhere. When your enemies seek to destroy your way of life, your ethnic identity, and your faith, pacifism amounts to self-inflicted genocide. Like much of the Sermon on the Mount, it might seem that the only way to embrace this love-your-enemy stuff is as unrealistic poetry. When a teenager listens to a love song, it sounds like the truth. When a spouse who is a veteran of bills, sickness, arguments, and parenting hears a love song, they appreciate the melody, the poetry, and the aspirational thoughts about love, but they don't regard the codependent lyrics as a guide to a healthy relationship. It's with that measured optimism that we read these passages most of the time. Or, more likely, we just as Christians decide that we don't really have enemies. That sounds more noble. Sure, an act of terrorism brings feelings of hatred towards Muslims, an affront to our religious freedom focuses our hostility towards a liberal judiciary, but those feelings go away, mostly, in a short amount of time. But this message must have been much harder to swallow for an audience that was surrounded by real enemies. And the enemies among the Jews were just as vicious. Just a quick survey of the religious factions of the day paints a picture of how much conflict there really was. The Zealots, who wanted violent revolt. The Pharisees, who believed that strict adherence to the law was everything. The Essenes, who were the separatist monks of the day. And the Sadducees, who thought the rest of these people all needed to calm down just a little bit. These people all hated each other and would sometimes even kill each other. Designating someone as your enemy gave you the right to deny their humanity and their neighborness. You could avoid the whole Leviticus 19.18 thing. So with most of his listeners having dismissed the love your enemy part, Jesus was asked to define the term neighbor, and he did it in the most provocative way possible. He told a story. Not just a story, but an offensive story that has an enemy not just as a sympathetic character, but as the hero of the story. The Antihero. A man was once traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked. His attackers nearly beat him to death and took everything he had. They left him for dead on the road, naked and bleeding. In a stroke of luck, there was a priest traveling to Jericho who came upon him. But when he saw him, he stayed clear, and he got out of there as quickly as possible. Another deeply religious man, a Levite, came upon the scene, and he did the same exact thing, just leaving him to bleed to death. But then, a Samaritan came by. Ignoring the danger and the fact that most Samaritans hate Jews, he rendered first aid on the scene. He cleaned and bandaged the injured man's wounds and then transported him to a boarding house and tended to him all night. In the morning, the Samaritan had to leave, but he paid the manager to take care of the man while he healed. Don't worry, if it takes longer than what I've paid for, I'll take care of the cost when I come back, he told the manager. Then Jesus asked the scholar, well, what do you think? Which of the three men was a true neighbor to the injured man? 
the one who helped him, the scholar replied. Jesus simply looked back at him and said, that's your answer. Do that. From Luke 10, 30 to 37. It is, of course, well known that Jews and Samaritans were enemies, but most of us don't know why. The grudge went way back, like almost 750 years, when the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Most of the people were carried off as slaves, but Jewish farmers were left behind to work the land and provide food for the empire. These people began to intermarry with the Assyrians, which was not only a betrayal of their people that had been murdered and enslaved, but it watered down their ethnicity. Making matters worse, they mixed the Jewish religion with idolatry of horrific kinds, even including religious prostitution and child sacrifice. When they eventually tried to reunite with the exiled Jews, they were rejected as traitors. A hundred years before the time of Christ, the Jews attacked the Samaritans and decimated their country and destroyed their temple. Around the time of Jesus' birth, a band of Samaritan terrorists attacked the temple in Jerusalem and defiled it by spreading human bones throughout the sanctuary. There was some bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans, literally. The Jews made racist claims that the Samaritans were of impure blood, practiced a half-breed religion, and were violent people. The thing is, they were literally Israel's neighbors. The fastest way to travel from where Jesus grew up in the Galilean countryside to Jerusalem was through Samaria. Although it's become a popular idea that the Jews traveled around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans so much, there's really no evidence for this. Historical records show that Jews did travel through Samaria. Even though they hated the Samaritans, it was a long walk through some very tough country, not to mention going through the Jordanian desert. And it just wasn't really feasible. Plus, the Roman Empire of Jesus' day made traveling through the territory a politically simple thing to do, like traveling between states in the United States. The Jews and Samaritans were neighbors who actually interacted regularly. They didn't hate each other out of xenophobia. They knew each other well, and they had good reasons for their hatred. Their mutual hatred wasn't out of ignorance. It was well-informed. Antihero. The story of the Samaritan who comes to the rescue of the Jewish assault victim is an interesting one. It happens in solidly Jewish territory. Samaria wasn't between Jerusalem and Jericho. The Samaritan man was far from home, and he was among people who hated him. And that's important. The reason why the priest and the Levite moved on so quickly isn't because they're evil. They did what was smart. The injured man was still alive, and with the extent of his injuries, he probably hadn't been there long. It was very likely that his attackers were still nearby. Maybe they had even set a trap for would-be do-gooders. A typical terrorist tactic we've all learned about is the two-bomb method. During the occupation of Iraq, militants would set off a car bomb in a busy area and wait for law enforcement, medical aid, and helpful civilians to gather. That's when the second bomb would be detonated, killing even more people. On the road to Jericho, it was very likely this man's attackers, having robbed the man of everything he had, had left him alive as bait for some compassionate soul who might come by and fall prey to the same fate. But if it was dangerous for Jewish men in Jewish territory, how dangerous was it for a Samaritan if he encountered these torturous criminals? We like to identify with the Samaritan, but most of us are more like the priest and the Levite who quickly move along, knowing that the commitment to fix situations in our neighbors' lives is potentially dangerous and more complex than we're ready to take on. As someone who's spent his life sometimes walking by the injured and sometimes picking them up to bandage their wounds, I can tell you that it is no small task to be the Samaritan. If you've been in that place, you already know it. It's easier to just keep walking. 
I grew up in a family of six who always had extra people living with us. Since my wife and I got married, we have had over 25 people live with us. For many of those people, their wounds have been deep. The healing has been slow. The cost has been high. You've probably learned the same thing from trying to help people. Like you, I have walked by the wounded too. It's easier. I've been both the Jew and the Samaritan in this story. But there's something more going on in this story. The Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. Only the newly established Pax Romana, the Roman Empire imposed peace between territories, kept violence at bay. These people were self-proclaimed enemies who hated each other. Jesus is making another point, and it's this. Many times, our neighbors and our enemies are the same exact people. Whether someone is our neighbor or enemy doesn't really matter when we are called to love both. Being the enemy. I've worked with people who needed to learn to love their enemies. I've sat with those whose lives have been destroyed by a relative that sexually abused them. Most of those relatives were still around. I've cried with people so deeply hurt by a parent who put their addiction before their own children that the child has never really truly felt loved by anyone. The struggle on the road to forgiveness is how to love without getting devastated again. Jesus understood this dilemma better than anyone else in history. He came to save humanity with love and vulnerability, but the world would become his enemy. The neighbors he loved and cared for would call for his torture and murder. In his last minutes, some of his last words would be words of forgiveness for the world that had become his tormentor. But if you look hard enough into this story, you'll find something even deeper than the idea that our neighbors and enemies are the same people. In this drama, there's one more character to identify with. The injured man. Naked, beaten, and bloody. The human condition is one in which we make ourselves enemies with God and we choose the opposing side. We are part of the humanity that murdered him and made ourselves his enemy. Here's a reason to be wary of helping us. More enemies might be around the corner, ready to do harm, and don't believe that God doesn't hurt. The Bible says that he does. We don't deserve help and we can't be trusted to even be thankful. But Jesus, seeing us broken and naked and bleeding to death, bandages our wounds, takes us to safety and pays the price for our healing. He tells us that his example is the one to follow in a world of dangerous neighbors and enemies. It's not hard to understand. So, like the philosopher says, We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. Everything you know about Jesus is wrong. Jesus truly loved his enemies. The oppressive, murderous, and enslaving Roman soldiers were treated with compassion. The dangerous, heretical Samaritans were actively pursued for interaction. The crowds who cheered for his torture and execution were offered forgiveness they had not even asked for. He didn't claim that we have no enemies, just that we are compelled to love them. Change how you think about Jesus. The Bible tells us, while we were God's enemies, he made us his friends through the death of his son. Surely, now that we are his friends, he will save us through his son's life. How does the fact that through the death of Jesus, we have peace with God change our perspective to one of unconditional love towards everyone else. Challenge your assumptions. Most people identify with the hero of this story when the reality is more sobering. 
How can we identify more with the victim of this story than the hero? Choose to live differently. How do you respond to the fact that Jesus has mercy on us and saves us from the brutality of this world? How should this influence your actions towards other people?